Welcome back to Ravens Recap. Today we are going to talk about the top 10 offensive linemen in franchise history. And to talk about this, we have on the show none other than Cole Jackson from YouTube, two guys watching football, and uh, just showing up all over Ravens Twitter with his uh, great takes and, and thoughts. We're really excited to have him on. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you guys so much for having me. I'm glad uh, glad to finally get on here and uh, get to talk to you guys. You guys have been doing awesome work, and so I'm glad to be a part of it. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun over the last couple of years, like getting to know everybody in the community, and uh, it's been really a great community to learn from, and everyone I feel like is just learning from each other, getting better at analyzing the game, and uh, I think we wouldn't even be able to have this show a couple years ago, right? Because I think, I don't know about you, but I know that because you have the offensive line background that we should definitely talk about. But I think for the three of us, like starting the show was really an opportunity for us to really take offensive line more seriously and looking at it closer and better understanding what goes into good offensive line play. Yeah, I think I think you're actually, that's, that's something that's really interesting. And I think something that's really growing out of the social media age that we're in. There's so many opportunities to keep learning, keep getting better. And, uh, you know, even though I have a background, I learn something every day. I'm constantly, you know, watch clinic material. I'm constantly talking to guys, learning from them. Uh, this sport is so complex. There's so many moving pieces, evolving pieces. Um, you know, as long as you open your mind and you want to learn, you'll learn. And so uh, I think it's been awesome, especially in our community. Uh, more people are learning a lot more about the game, uh, getting down into. Uh, and I think the residual effect is that the, the takes get a little bit stronger uh, rather than a little <laughs> bit hotter. So that's what I'm loving about it. <laughs> yeah, I think you bring up a great point, Alec. It just It's really been the past couple of years. You look, there's plenty of stuff on YouTube now and you know there's more material for people to digest but i mean like you go back to our our childhood you know grew up playing playing madden what's the one position in that game you can't control the offensive line it's like everyone else you can do and you know they got stats for every player offensive line you click it up and all they tell you is what years they were on what team it's like just the unsexy maybe the unsexiest position in sports is how it used to be but yeah i i agree with what you guys are saying it's finally seeing the limelight thanks to people putting out content and I know for me as a as a football fan it's just been very exciting to actually learn some of what an all the offensive line actually does how they all work together and I feel like I've learned so much over these past couple years and there's still just so much more as a casual fan to learn so should be a fun episode as we go through this list yeah I guess the kind of give the premise you know we were talking about before the show but every single position except for a right guard is sort of up in the air going into this season. And when we're looking at this top list of franchise history, we want to kind of talk about the traits that made these players special and maybe what which of those traits in this scheme would be useful uh, when we're trying to plug the hole they used to be in for this team. I think when I look at the list, there's a couple players. I don't know if their game would translate to the 2022 style of football that exists, but um, still all really great players to discuss. Yeah, I, th I think the biggest thing is the game is just getting more athletic, right? So I, I, that's kind of been, you kind of see it every draft cycle. You kind of get guys hit, getting hit with a not athletic tag, and that's becoming more and more common. And I think a lot of that is the involvement of college football. Um, they've moved from pro-style offenses to now it's a lot of spread, a lot of quick passing screen games. I made a comment the other day, and it's like almost every offensive tackle I've watched 
their biggest knock is they're oversetting and allowing inside rush lanes. So it's like, okay, let's think about that. So a tackle is going to overset. So in that context, he's setting too wide. So he's going an extra step uh, on the, on the edge player. Why would that be? Well, he's not used to having to sustain those blocks. Um, he's used to just getting out, getting his hands on a guy because the ball is coming out so much quicker. But then when they get to the NFL, you're playing against more legit pass defenses. That's not quite how the game works. Quarterbacks got to hold the, hold the ball, go through his progressions. Um, so I think that's led to some of the bigger issues coming out of college football into the NFL. Um, but the biggest thing that's shifted to me is just the athleticism. I mean, you're getting legitimate freak athletes now. Um, like you look at like a Daniel Falale, uh, the way he moves at 6'9", 387 pounds. It's hard to come out of college football and not be able to move. Uh, a lot more zone schemes being ran rather than just traditional gaps. Interesting because the Ravens do run a, a lot of gap concepts. Uh, so they can get a away with a little bit less athletic guys. But I think that's been the biggest shift. It's the, the change in college football has led to more raw pass protectors coming into the NFL as rookies. I also think the, uh, the amount of pooling that we do now also kind of demands for that to be a skill that they have. Um, it's not common for us to just kind of straight up block on a play. There's almost always somebody pooling. Yeah, that, and that's that's really common of a, of a gap scheme, right? So anytime you run a power, you're going to have a pulling guard. Uh, they've started using that counter bash where you got two guys pulling. Um, and, and the funny thing about that is uh, you don't necessarily have to be – like Bradley Bozeman as a guard, for example, and he got the notoriety for being a really solid pulling guard, right? Um, it was mm -hmm. kind of like a big trade of his. But he didn't do it with speed. He did it with really clean footwork, really smart angles, and he just – had that IQ level where he was going to diagnose where the player he was supposed to be blocking was and getting to him and taking the right angle. So I think, you know, he's a great study uh, for, for kids if they want to, you know, see pulling, because it's going to show the clean footwork. It's not always just about getting to the gap as fast as humanly possible. It's, you gotta, you gotta identify the defense as you're moving. Right. And so that high level processing uh, that type of play can kind of mask your athleticism. And that's where I'll see, with a guy that's coming, you know, say it's an offensive tackle, take Rasheed Walker uh, from Penn State, not the most athletic guy, but super smart football player, takes smart angles, identifies, and while he's moving, he's got that play speed. So I think that's what really intrigues me about kind of studying these guys and trying to see, okay, if you're not athletic, how do they make up for that? And what do they do in their game that, that kind of masks that? That's something that Bradley Bozeman as a guard did so phenomenally well. And I think that's why he took off and was an even better center. Just playing in more of a phone booth. He's got less space to worry about. Um, so, you know, when, when you look at the traits and how they projected, um, you guys probably saw me on Twitter. I carried on about Bradley Bozeman to center for like three years. Um, I just, I, I really thought it was his natural position and I, I, I was glad to see him have success last year. Yeah. Bozeman definitely had a great, uh, season last year as a center. Uh, unfortunately, probably his last in Baltimore, um, he's going to get a, a huge contract in free agency more than likely, but yeah, I think you bring up a, a great point about, you know, finding the balance between athleticism and football IQ. And I think it'll be interesting to see what the Ravens do going forward. So with that, I think we probably want to delve into this list and just look at, you know, both of us uh, as a pod, Chris, Alec, and I came up with uh, our own separate list and kind of put them into a composite of what 
we viewed as a top 10 offensive line in Ravens history. And uh, Cole put his list together, separate of us. Cole, since you're the guest, would you like to start off with your number 10 guy? Uh, absolutely. So I'm going with the original Zeus, the big man, Orlando Brown Sr. from back in that inaugural season. I, I still blame Zeus, the original Zeus, for why we lost Orlando Brown Jr. Because he said he had to play left tackle. He wanted to honor his father. So <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's the connection. Um, but yeah, this one of the things about you know, kind of the original Ravens, like the 96 to 2000 teams, they actually had some really interest. They had Wally Williams on that line. Uh, they had Orlando Brown senior. There's just, there's some guys that like, I, I don't know about you guys. I'm only 29 years old. So like I was four in 96 when the Ravens got yeah. a team. So I wasn't studying that weekly right. film. Um, 92 birthday. 92 birthday. Yep. That's, that's all of us too. Okay, there you go. Yeah, so we're all the same age. So we weren't four years old uh, breaking down the film, that's for sure. Um, But, you know, you got to go back and you got to kind of recognize that, like, there's been so many good guys recently in the last 10 years. But you got to remember there's Mojis out there, too. So that's why Orlando Brown Sr. had to be on this list. He was the original big man awesome player you know you're good when you draft jonathan ogden and you move him to guard because you already have a left tackle uh they also had tony jones at right tackle um so you know got a shout out big man there yeah senior made our list he was uh number eight for us and i think all those things stand true i think he was just a real nasty player and it was kind of cool to have him have two stints with baltimore which is a, a unique uh situation for a lot of these players to come back after some years and um yeah i mean and, and you can't beat the storyline, right, with his son coming to play for us eventually and all that stuff. It's just pretty cool. And both of them being great players uh, doesn't hurt. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually who I had at number nine. I put OBJ. And he probably should be a little bit higher, but I'm not going to lie. I got a little personal vendetta against him. Uh, you know, we went from Ronnie Stanley, Orlando Brown Jr. to having Alejandro Villain away with Tyree Phillips, and I blame him for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Junior's a really interesting case with this list. We didn't have a consensus. I, I think he was the one of the more wildly uh, variable on our list, so he's left off our list because we didn't all have him on there. First honorable mention, but yeah, I mean, he was obviously a, a talent when he was here, and so was his his dad. I think. I mean, this is getting away from the X's and O's, but I think another big thing for Orlando Brown and and a reason why the organization. Uh, was very happy to have his his son there, um, not just from a talent perspective, but he was a guy who was really looked up to in the locker room, at least from you know the window that we as fans have it. Um, I actually um, digging up some research for this episode. I found Ravens TV had a they had Jonathan Ogden with a mic on, and I think it was a 2005 season practice. Uh, just look it up on YouTube. It was pretty funny, and and. Orlando Brown there is clearly he's clearly the the jokester there and the guys are having a lot of fun with him and it's uh and from what I remember when he was in Baltimore yeah he was a key part of that offensive line a good team guy um and with the offensive line that's super important because of of all the the position groups on the field that unit has to work as one really so great talent but also a great teammate too for for his guys what I find great about that video is that um, I think Terrell Suggs was in there for a minute and I could not tell he was there at all. His personality, very muted. He was like the opposite <laughs> of Orlando Brown Sr., um, which is very strange to see from Terrell Suggs. I mean, everybody knows he's always been kind of the jokester, the loud mouth of, uh, for a long time for the Ravens. But yeah, for whatever reason, he just uh, 
and it wasn't that way in that in that one 2005 practice it was very jarring <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of big personalities on that team yeah <laughs> all right so i guess we'll move on to our number 10 cole this is a guy you also have on your list you have him at number eight uh so we had jason brown on number 10 and this is an interesting guy because um at least for us we were talking about this pre-show we were like you know, we know that Jason Brown was a very good player when he was here, but of all the good offensive linemen for this franchise, he's one of the most forgettable. I think part of that was because, you know, looking up on Wikipedia, I'm not sure, I'm trying to remember how accurate this is, but it looks like he was only a two-year starter. He kind of worked as a backup at center to Mike Flynn in 2005 and 2006, then took over um, as a starter at the guard position in 2007, 2008. Got a huge payday when he hit free agency, played for the Rams for a couple of years, and then uh, left football to become a farmer in his prime at our age, 29. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting one because I'll, I'll admit that I don't remember too much about this guy's playing style, but, you know, I, I know he was really important to the, at the time. 2008, he was a starter on that offensive line. That team obviously was a huge run first offense where you had guys like, I mean, LaRon McClain, come on, he got a thousand yards on that on that team. And Joe Flacco, while he had a decent rookie year, clearly wasn't a guy who was, you know, going to go out there um, like Andrew Luck or someone of that caliber in their rookie year. And they were ready to just pass the, the football and, and put up multiple scores week in and week out. So key part on that offensive line that housed a three-headed uh, running monster in Rice, McGahee, and, and McLean. Yeah, I always refer to him as the, the original Ryan Jensen. Uh, he was kind of that guy that didn't start at center uh, because he was playing guard and put Bozeman in that category too. Uh, going yeah, back too. to, it's just, it, it just, they had a center, so he played guard. Um, and then when he finally got it, that start at center and he looked so darn good, he gets his payday and he's out of town. So it's, it's unfortunately, you guys mentioned it, probably what's going to happen to Bozeman this year, but it's just funny to kind of go back and see it happen with a guy like Jason Brown. Uh, yeah, no, he was a beast at center. Um, he was just one of those guys where he was a big physical guy, projected well in more of a phone booth, was never a, a bad left guard by any means, but you know, he was so pivotal as a center uh, that year. Like that, that O-line was nuts too. They, they had a really good run. So uh, yeah, no, I just thought it was funny to see the left guard center thing. Cause it's rearing its ugly head again this all season. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to see how Jason Brown, fourth round pick is the left guard became center and then got the payday to St. Louis and uh, continue to play uh, center at a high level there. And it's just like, yeah, like you guys said, that storyline seems a little too uh, common for the Ravens. We'll see it multiple times. So, uh, you know, a later round pick, for instance, Bozeman was a sixth round pick, kind of being able to make that transition and uh, really excel. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's hope. I, I got I a challenge. I actually think Bradley Bozeman's going to stick around. Call me crazy. I don't think the market's going to be big for him. I think he's going to get a surprisingly team-friendly contract in Baltimore. Write it down. <laughs> hey, man, if you're right, we'll, yeah. we'll be so happy. That's it, man. Everybody wins, right? <laughs> and, man, if, if it happens, we're, we're playing that clip. Uh, we'll report it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, certainly hope you're right about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, how many, how many other centers are actually going to free agency i mean i know jensen's definitely a name so you got jensen you got uh ben jones you got brian allen you got the kid in carolina matt paradise 
Uh, you got Bradley Bozeman. So there's five. Now here's the big thing. That means five teams, if they don't keep them, need centers. Three of those teams are zone, zone scheme teams. That's not going to fit Bozeman. So I could see the Bucks bringing someone like Bozeman in, but if they're going to do that, why would they not just bring Jensen back? Right. Um, so I really think the market's going to shrink a bit. Uh, another team like the Eagles, that if they lose uh, Kelsey in, in, uh, uh, to retirement, they're going to need a center. They run a zone scheme. Is that going to be a fit for Bradley Bozeman? Probably not. Take another team out of there, right? So all these other teams that are looking for centers, you're going to probably be taking Tyler Linderbaum. There's another team out of them. So it's kind of basic supply and demand. I mean, if the if the amount of interest shrinks, it's just going to lead to a more team-friendly deal. So we'll see. I mean, don't discount a team could always sign him to be a guard, right? So that's always completely possible. Um, he showed he could do it at a starting level. But as a center, I don't think the market's going to be as high as we think. But I've been wrong before, and he'll probably sign a three-year, $40 million deal, and I'll just cry in my bed while we look for another center. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's to hoping the center market is too bloated, and Bozeman feels as strongly about playing center as as Orlando Brown Jr. does about playing left tackle. <laughs> I want to see you see a tweet there. He says, I'm a center. <laughs> center's just some big capital letters. <laughs> oh, man. Man, that would be funny. Well, to, not to spoil it, although, but I, I guess I am right now. Uh, we didn't have Bozeman on our list, but we had the guy playing next to him, uh, Kevin Zeitler at our number nine. I got to admit, at least when we were compiling this uh, composite list here, that uh, Zeitler was a little bit surprising for me. Um, I actually probably, I'd argue probably putting Bozeman above him just because, I mean, he had more time here in Baltimore, at least as of yet. Had that good season at guard, good season at center. Zeitler's, you know, he's had a good season so far, been pretty solid player for the Ravens. I think has been a, a great pickup for us. But yeah, it's just, you know, one of those guys who's, Cole, I mean, maybe you have a little bit more to add here, but from at least from my side, it's just, he's been a very like technically sound player, not, you know, nothing too flashy, um, not necessarily overpowering guys, just very technical, very, you know, decisive in his blocks and just, you know, does his job day in, day out. I think you nailed it. He's he's the epitome of a vet that's going to come in here and, and just, it's that old adage, right? Um, the coach in the locker room kicking guys in the ass, just saying, do your job. Uh, that's like the old football coach that it, that's... The basics of football, everyone knows what they need to do on any given play. Um, the plays are so specific. There's very little um, improvision in terms of how a play is drawn up. Everyone's just got to execute, right? And Zeitler was really, really consistent in doing that. Um, I think what he really did for the Ravens was he just locked down that right guard pass block. Like He, he was, I think, fifth in, in guard pass blocking efficiency in the NFL this year. So, I mean, it was funny, too, because I remember seeing – one of the media people say that, you know, I, after they, you know, it's great. They signed Zeitler, but I wish they would have addressed the pass block. And I'm like, you're getting one of the pa best pass blocking guards in the NFL. Like, you know, what else can you do? Um, so, <laughs> and, and he proved it this year. He, he locked that down the right side, a B gap between Bozeman and, uh, and uh, Zeitler was, was pretty clean. It was not the issue this year. Uh, I think we all know where the issues were um, and it wasn't there. So I think it's going to be great. It's going to be a vet that uh, carries into next year. 
Uh, and I mean, that's always tough when you do these lists, right? Like he had a really solid season, but do you kind of trump him over guys with continuity? Um, so that's yeah. kind of where you got to kind of balance it. It's like, do you take the one year really solid play? Do you take the continuity? But that's why it's, I love how you guys did the composite. It kind of puts all those thought processes together and gives you one picture. So that was really cool that you guys did that. Yeah. I think the other reason too, is we just had an episode that was about, oh, I don't know, two hours long with us going through a bunch of lists. So we've done it for time's sake. It's probably better to compile them together. (laughs) Oh man. Uh, Gosh, I forget if we said it live, but uh, we were looking at that episode and and Chris was like, oh, this episode, it's going to be like 15 minutes, man. How are we going to get enough content for this? Yeah. <laughs> an hour and a half later, bathroom breaks. <laughs> yeah, speaking of bad takes, there, there was mine. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the one good thing about the Ravens struggling is it adds, you know, we're all not just not agreeing on everything, you know? <laughs> it's not all roses. No, not this year, that's for sure. Um, oh, man. Those roses are wilted if they are there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Cole, I know we've talked a little bit about Orlando Brown Jr. He's number nine on your list. Anything more to say about him? Uh, I just thought he was, the way his skill set developed while he was here, um, I think was really impressive. Uh, You know, we talked about traits earlier. I think for a guy that, and we talked about athleticism, I think for a bigger guy that wasn't overly athletic, his ability to square guys up and pass protection and use his really good length. The biggest thing I want to see for a slower footed guy is someone that can square his hips to his edge defender. And the reason I say that is because if they don't, they're going to rely on, on flipping their hips and doing what Tyree Phillips does because he's not fluid and trying to kind of, he'll flip his hips and then he'll take his, his inside hand, like his left hand, if you're a right tackle and try and put it on the inside hip of the, the defensive player. And he's just going to try and ride him out of the back of the pocket. And that's great. But it's not great when Lamar Jackson's scrambling or through the right the right spot. That happened quite a bit. Um, and he also just would straight up miss blocks because he, he wasn't able to square his defender. So I think Orlando Brown Jr.'s ability to develop that. And if you guys want a really good podcast, uh, Trench Warfare, Brandon Thorne does an interview with Orlando Brown Jr. where he talks about guys he watched, how he tried to develop those those skills in terms of getting guys squares using his length. He talks about it in the pod. He knows he's not athletic. So having that awareness, knowing that, knowing how to beat a guy despite that, that's the kind of stuff I love about this game and this position because it's a chess match out there. So I think his ability to master that chess match is what made him such a great player. Awesome. I think this is getting to the interesting part of our list because you had uh, Jason Brown at number eight. And then we have at number seven, we have Matt Burke, who was with this team, uh, obviously in the twilight of his career and ended with a Super Bowl. So he'll always have that kind of nostalgia with him. And I think at this point in his career, his like blitz pickup communication and leadership on the line, like we were talking about with Zeitler, was really the number one thing he added. Uh, obviously, was still a very technically sound player, but um, that veteran presence was really what the offensive line needed yeah you nailed it and they went from brown into him and uh his leadership skills i mean he was that guy that you kind of see it he gets lined up he's pointing guys out he's constantly communicating uh really set the tone they had a lot of moving pieces on those o-lines uh leading up to 2012 and he was that linchpin in the middle that was kind of because i mean you got to remember they went from jail retired what 2007 so wasn't here in 08 
if I'm recalling this correctly. Um, yeah. So they had revolving, not a revolving door, but they had fluidity at left tackle. Uh, they had guys changing on the interior. So it was that him at center locked things down throughout the early Flacco years. And I, I, I you can't underrate that, um, especially developing a relationship between the quarterback and the center. That's really what made him such a great player to me. I think I had him at number five. I was really high on him as, as a Raven on the O-line. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I was uh, thinking about when we were going through the list, and you know, I don't want to spoil it too much with individual names, but I noticed there weren't a whole lot of centers on the list, um, just in general. I mean, do you think that is more of just a, you know, a numbers game, and that there's only one center position, but there's two tackles, two guards, or is that something where you know the Ravens really haven't had like they've had serviceable centers, but they haven't had a lot of elite centers? What do you what do you think about that, Cole? It's a good point, especially in recent history. They've, I mean, this has been a revolving door at the center position since Burke. I mean, we, what did we do? We tried to put Gradkowski in there. He made me want to run through a wall. Um, guy couldn't. <laughs> I, I think I, I don't think he could block me. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> maybe don't clip me on that because he probably would. But uh, so that, you know, they had, and then they brought in Zuda from from the Bucks because they were trying to get do a trade to get someone in there. And then we've had the mess of. You know, okay, Ryan Jensen's finally a center and he's gone. <laughs> and then, you know, then it's Matt Skura getting in there as a UDFA. Um, so, I mean, in recent history, we've had solid players. It's just we kind of get them in there too late. We don't get them signed to that second contract. Um, but going back mm-hmm. to the early years, I think there's also going to be a part, like, if you're not really into uh, – <laughs> This sounds stupid, so like, just bear with me here for a second. Who's the one player you can't see on the broadcast view of the offensive line? It's the center because he's in the middle of everything. Um, so there's like, there's that aspect of you don't see him, you don't really hear from him because when do you ever hear a trash talking center? The exception is Ryan Jensen. Um, right. And, and uh, I mean, it, they're just so underrated. And if you don't really kind of get into all the things centers do, you just don't really appreciate it. They're probably the most underappreciated player on the most underappreciated unit in football. So I think that's a big thing. But they also like I, I had Casey Rabish in my uh, in my honorable mentions. Um, so, I mean, they've had some solid centers for sure, but they haven't had. You're right. They haven't had the elite multi-year pro bowl multi-year all pro guy um that also is there's only you know two of those guys in the league every year and you usually get it where it's the same guys over and over like you think of jason kelsey who's kind of dominated throughout his entire career but i think it's i think the biggest issue is in recent memory we haven't been able to get that center into this position and and kind of let them develop there and hone it and then get them on a second contract Mm mm-hmm before I move on, I, I do think you brought up a really interesting point there um, when you said point out that really every year there's only so many truly elite centers. And yeah, I think even thinking off the top of my head, I can name you so many more elite offensive tackles or guards from just, you know, the past two decades than than at the center position. Um, you know, I probably need to struggle to give you more names than Jason Kelsey, Alan Krutz, uh what was his name? Kevin Mawai, it was like with the Jets and Titans, something yeah. like that. And you're you're saying about how difficult is it? Just ex- insanely difficult for guys to play this position at the NFL level. You think so? There's only so many guys who are going to be able to do it. I think it's hard to dominate, and so I think mm. that's really where it's stru- where you kind of get that disconnect. The biggest thing for me is, especially in like it's not so much lately because I think teams are kind of moving into those four down linemen. But if mm. you go back to the 
I want to say late 2000s, early 2010. Well, not even late. I want to say 2000s in a bucket. So 2000 to 2010, a lot of three, four defenses, a lot of three, four defenses lead to nose tackles. Right. Um, so right. Yeah. Where's, where's the nose tackle sitting right in the center's kitchen all day. Those were probably some long ass days for those centers. Cause um, I mean, you're snapping and then you got the Vince Will forks, the, you know, Haloti Nada's the, these yeah. massive six, four, you know, 340 pound animals uh, that they have to deal with all the time. So I think that's kind of part of it too. I think there wasn't a lot of zone back in the day. So all, pretty much all you did was snap the ball and try and drive block the guy in front of you. It just led to like not a lot of highlight blocks. Um, it was more just kind of what we talked about doing your job. And, and that's not necessarily sexy at an already not sexy position. So I think that's probably the biggest thing for me. You, you, tend, you usually don't get your center out in space, making like a key highlight block, that kind of stuff. So I think it's just, a lot of it really is being in the interior of the line and you just don't see them do what they're paid to do. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing for me. Awesome. Let's go ahead and have you introduce your number seven and our uh, number six. So I got Coleccio Semele. And so this was a guy that again, God, it killed me losing him. I remember he wanted to be paid as a, as a left tackle and I don't know what it is about guys in this city wanting to do that. Because <laughs> um, I think the Raiders gave him like 12 million AAV, which was like blew the guard market out. I, someone could correct me if I'm wrong, but I, he got paid a stupid amount of money for a guard, but yeah. his agent made yep. the case. Five, that, five years, 60 million. That's so, it. Yeah. Uh, so, yep. And his, his agent made the case that, well, he's also a tackle, so he needs to be paid as a tackle. Um and, you know, it just put the Ravens outside of the, the cost. Um, and I think he even went on to just play guard for the Raiders. He just got pay, paid for that ability to also be a tackle if they needed him. Um, but, yeah, losing him sucked. Dominant player. He was so good in 2012. Um, huge reason why that they had that postseason run. So, you know, just a physically dominant player. They've struggled to kind of find a left guard since KO. Um, you know, it's been tough just to have that type of physical beast on the inside. Yeah, it was a real privilege for the Ravens offense when they had both Osemele and Yonda on the same line. And, um, and Burke, like what a and, nuts yep. interior, my God. And then you also get Brian McKinney, who's like, oh, I guess I'll be good for four games. <laughs> <laughs> and that kicked Michael Orr over. Uh, crazy, like the way that O-line panned out, we don't talk about it enough, but like that O-line was dynamite in that postseason. Um, I know we always talk about Flacco's numbers for obvious reasons. I mean, of the best ever top three quarterback performance, maybe top two, actually, I guess just with Montana, but uh, you know, a lot of that was that, that O-line was lights out, especially against the 49ers who had a beast of a front seven. So yeah, no, that when you say luxury, having him as your left guard is just a pure luxury. Absolutely. Yeah. I, it's a real shame that injuries the past couple seasons have really taken a huge toll on him. I don't know. Is he, still in the nfl trying to make a team i don't think he played last year uh you're right because i was actually really interested in him uh about two years ago i don't mm -hmm. i think he ended up signing with kansas city kansas city in 2020 yeah. yeah i don't even know if he got any games though but yeah you're he he got hurt he signed that one-year deal he started the first five games at left guard then he sort 
tore tendons in both of his knees in week five. Uh, so that was probably the career ender right there. But, you know, he's got the Super Bowl to go out on uh, that he had in 2012. I guess technically he would have been a 2020 Super Bowl. He would have been on the team on their injured reserve. So he's yep. got two rings. There you go. <laughs> Congratulations, <Yeah>. KL. <laughs> there you go, man. And a boatload of money, too. So Yeah, and a boatload of money. <laughs> All right. So we also had Osemele's number well, we had him as number six on our list, one ahead of you. Um, so next guy, I guess we'll talk about uh, Edwin Mulatalo, who many know as the longtime uh, man on the right side of, of Jonathan Ogden. Yeah, and like what, like he was part of so many good, like Jamal Lewis pretty much every year. Jamal Lewis had a beast of a year. It was, you know, he was there doing it. He's kind of an interesting case. He, he had, I think, eight years in Baltimore. Um, and I think I went back and looked and they had like a top 10 rushing offense in like six of them, I think. So six out of eight. Um, but yeah, he was just an absolute linchpin beside Ogden. I mean, the left side of the line was set it and forget it, which is something that my God, I'd love to get back to. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think the big thing with him, he, when we talk about continuity, consistency, uh, he was the model of it, right? So he was relatively healthy throughout his time until his last year. I think he missed a couple of games here and there, but, uh, he was basically your, you know, set it and forget it, left guard beside one of the best left tackles ever. Um, and I think that gives you a lot of kind of upside in terms of making this top 10 list and placing pretty high on it. So, um, you know, I think he's actually pretty underrated. A lot of younger fans don't really kind of know about the impact he had, but um, they ran Jamal Lewis to the left side of that offensive line constantly. And it was because you had those two there getting the blocking done up front. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. He's one of my favorite players. I remember he was uh, one of the top players that performed in our comp pick bracket of 2020. We put all the comp pick players uh, up against each other. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I've just always really enjoyed him. And you're right. Like looking back on his game log, unbelievable consistency, except for the last year in 2006, which maybe would have been a different year if, if he was healthy um, and playing yeah. at, at full level because we know how special that team was. But uh, yeah, just a great player. And, um, you know, it helps obviously to play with Jonathan Ogden the whole way. But uh, I think he would stand on his own, although I don't know if his game would translate to today's game. That was the one player where I kind of looked at him and I'm like, I don't know if he would be a good player, like because we talked about at the top, the athleticism. Yeah, he was uh, 6'3", 350 pounds. So, I mean, that's like a big boy. He's like, <laughs> like, I'm like, what, 5'8", 190 right now. So I got that belly weight. He had that belly weight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and from yeah, my no, understanding, I'm, he's not one of the offensive linemen who became, you know, a, a cycler slash marathon runner post uh, playing career. <laughs> yeah, no, probably not. He didn't do the Matt Burke uh, rejuvenation of his image. That's for sure. <laughs> he did so the, weird uh, seeing those guys. The the Vince Wilfork. I'm gonna open up a barbecue joint kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! As an aside, Cole. I, I mean, if you haven't seen this yet, you have to. I mean, you might have. Um, have you seen that Alan Fanica is now a marathon runner? No, I didn't. Wow. Yeah. We. That's I forget crazy. how we came across this, but yeah, he he he's, he's like a toothpick now. It's crazy. <laughs> I'm just seeing it on Google right now. That does not look normal. Right? <laughs> oh, that guy tortured us for years. You know, another model of consistency there for the Steelers. Fanica, absolute beast. Um, but yeah, that's like the Marshall Yonda transformation. I remember the first time I saw 
a picture of him. I was like, oh crap, we can't pull him off the street <laughs> if we need him. <laughs> <laughs> His online days are over. It's crazy how they have to like keep their body at a certain level for the game, but it's not like a natural thing necessarily, right? To stay big and strong like that. Uh, they they kind of just want to regress to just yeah. uh, strong and lean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, I'd love to see what their diet is during uh, like training camp. Just see how much food they actually eat to maintain their kind of fit. Like, how much does Daniel Falale eat in a day? Uh, Quite a that's, day. That's that's what I need to know. <laughs> that's the journalism I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but remember, we got the food sickness, and we thought maybe it was COVID this year, uh, and it was because he ate a pizza the night before. It's like. You think about performance and you're like, pizza's not the answer for any no, of the athletes except for I me. Pizza, I'm, like, I'm dead the next day. If I do a pizza and beer for dinner, I just I may as well just lay in bed for three hours. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna post a I'm gonna post an article in the chat. I'm not sure if this was what I read, but I think a couple of years ago, like Joe Thomas did an article just this detailing his uh Oh no way. This days. is great. Yeah. And I'm not sure if it's this article, but I know he was talking about like he was on a road trip with his family and like it was like two PM. They had just eaten lunch and he just like yells at the family that they need to go to McDonald's and he orders like five Big Macs and like two milkshakes, <laughs> something like that. Cause like that's how much mo- they need to eat that type of meal like every three hours to maintain this just unnatural body size that they have so here it is let me let me read it thomas went on to describe another aspect of his daily diet including a post-protein smoothie a tray of lasagna for dinner with a glass of whole milk a frozen pizza and a sleeve of girl scout cookies and a bowl of ice cream right before bed oh my that god that is absolutely disgusting and i love it <laughs> it's not a competitive eating contest but it's just their day-to-day wow. <laughs> Can't lose a bunch of weight afterwards. Holy wow. cow! I love food, and I love food a lot. I don't love food that much. <laughs> well, that's the thing, because like when you have to eat that much food, only so much of it's quality, because like ninety percent of it has to just be like whatever's laying around. Exactly. You don't have time. And like the amount of money invested in these, uh, it, like it's crazy. It's absolutely. Imagine trying to feed a kid like that. I just, I just wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> It would start. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Go play wide receiver. They eat a lot yeah. of ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe a punter. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So back to our list. We had number five. We had Mulatalo. Number five, you had Burke. And then it gets easy for the last four because it's a match on all of them. Um, number four, uh, Ben Grubbs. I, I feel like he was kind of like the more athletic version of Mulatalo, right? Just really steady. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just really good at his technique. And, um, you know, another guy who was only there for his first contract, but was a really effective and dependable member of some really good Ravens offensive lines and rushing attacks. Yeah. Ben Grubbs is. So he, 2007 was his rookie year. So that was our grade nine year or grade 10. Trying yeah, to remember. Grade nine, yeah. Grade nine. No, grade so ten. That was, grade ten. You're right. I think grade it was grade 10. ten. So yeah. I played defensive tackle when I was in grade nine. I switched to left guard in grade ten. And so who did I watch while I was watching the Ravens? It was always Ben Grubbs. So like I have the softest spot in my heart for Ben Grubbs because when I 
you know, on Sundays after playing high school football, it'd be watching grubs and being like, I'm watching this guy constantly because he's playing my position. So um, I think he actually played right guard in his first year um, and then moved to left guard, I think for the duration of his career. Um, But, you know, it was always, I've always had that soft spot for him just because he was that guy that I watched while I was playing high school football, playing my position for my team. So I've always had that soft spot. I almost, I almost bumped him up over Ronnie. I, I honestly almost did. Wow. Ben Grubbs is an interesting player for me because I recall this was right when I think my like Ravens fandom hit another level, right? Of like, I was definitely watching them. I remember watching so many games between 2000, 2006, but for whatever reason, I got maybe more engaged with the draft. Like maybe I bought a magazine at Barnes and Noble, you know, like, to, like, oh, man, sports, sports Illustrated. Magazine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like, and, and for whatever reason, I was just so disappointed. Like I, when I circled all my players, I guess like, because it's not sexy, I didn't really have a lineman. And when they picked Ben Grubbs in the first round, I was like, what come on (laughs) you know like and of course uh unfortunately stanley went right before him uh and that would have been like a really cool um pick for them to have that uh tackle dependency for all those years but they ended up getting a fantastic guard and um yeah i i just remember being disappointed but then like that was like when i really started to learn oh like these are important positions too right (laughs) (laughs) linemen matter and um yeah it kind of like that was like part of my like uh football growth right yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, definitely. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it as draft season kind of approaches, but I think interior offensive line is always gets, gets that little bit of a downgrade in the first round in terms of not being a premium position. But you look at a guy like Grubbs and you see, first of all, those top, top, top interior offensive linemen are kind of usually pretty day one ready, um, which I think is a huge boost uh, in terms of when you, when your team competing. So like, you know, take this year, like the Ben Grubbs of this draft is Kenyon green. So if the Ravens get him and, you know, he ends up being, you know, either your right tackle or your left guard, he's kind of a set and forget it as a rookie, which is pretty rare. I mean, I guess technically anyone can bust at any time, but relatively speaking, pretty safe uh, week one ability for him. Uh, so I, I always find it interesting with those guards that kind of get drafted because usually they're, if, if you're drafted in the first round, I wouldn't include Quentin Nelson in it. Cause I mean, that guy's just like, he's a, He's a freak. Like he's like a outlier, like just not many. He's just that good. Right. So, um, but you know, typically guards taken in the first round, they're going to be pretty darn good for you. And Grubbs was for us. Absolutely. Just so crazy in that draft. You not only got Ben Grubbs, but in the third round, they also picked up Marshall Yonda. Just the double dip, man. That was absolutely the the double dip. And then like, Oh, well, I guess we'll both be all pros. (laughs) (laughs) From the Ravens' perspective, too, I mean, they chose, I mean, Grubbs is an amazing player, but, I mean, it seems like they chose right, and they, like, you know, they get Grubbs for that five-year contract, they get that extra year added on to the end, then they get Marshall for four, and they're like, oh, Marshall's going to be really good, let's sign him to a long-term contract. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that was a decision, right? That that was, like, when they, uh, who'd, who'd they have to, de- I guess that's not the same. I was going to say it was, like, when... Bart Scott hit the free agency at the same time as Ray Lewis, but they weren't rookies at the same time. So it's not necessarily the same, but you have two guys in the same position that you're really only going to pay one of them kind of reminds you of that. Um, It's kind of an interesting outcome of the, I mean, we just saw it with Hurst and Andrews where Hurst was taken first, but Andrews kind of was obviously the better player. So Hurst gets shipped out. It's going to be interesting to see it with, with some of these other double dips because that seems to be, a trademark, but maybe I'd, I'd actually kind of want to go back and look now. Maybe this has been a long-standing Ravens thing, not just recent. So another one for you, uh, 2010, 
Ed Dixon round three, yep. Dennis Pitta round four. Right. And Dennis Pitta goes on to yeah. that hip injury. Uh, yeah. Stings. Still stings. When we drafted Hayden Hurst and, and Mark Andrews, I think I made the comment like, well, Mark Andrews has to be the better player because we've seen this play out a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, second, the second one picked is, uh, is the one that really... I have a great story about this. So I was on a work trip in BC, so like out west, and I was actually in northern BC. So I took one of those, like, you know, those little tiny ass planes that have like six passengers on them. So I, I it took off at like 7.30 Eastern time. So like the draft, had, no, that's, that's a lot. 7.30 Pacific time. So it was right around when the Ravens were picking. And so I land, I pull out my phone because obviously I, I was in the air when the pick was made. I land, I see that we traded back three times and got Hayden Hurst and like my colleague, who is now my manager right now. He tells the story all the time. The look in my face, like I was so sad that that was the, <laughs> that that was the approach. I was like, we traded down around DJ Moore. What are we doing? And then, so I didn't look at my phone and then I get home uh, or back to the hotel and I open my phone again. And I was like, Oh my God, we just trade up for Lamar Jackson. <laughs> so it was, that was an emotional roller coaster of a, of a draft night that, that, that day one of the 2018 draft. <laughs> yeah, passing on DJ Moore made me upset in that draft. But when they traded back in and I knew they were going for Lamar, I was so excited because I knew. Oh man, that was, that like was crazy. Move. And I was like, because I remember reading that year that he had the highest like ceiling of the whole yeah. group. Like you didn't, yeah. you didn't know what it end up going, but if, if, if it hit right, it was going to be unstoppable. And then like the second he started playing and, uh, you know, you had Flacco there as a 11th man. Uh, I was like, imagine what he could do when there's actually 11 real players. <laughs> on the team. <laughs> and I'll just Flacco standing at the boundary, just looking so disinterested. <laughs> I know. Like whenever he got in there and performed with 10 players, I was like, give him 11 for the love of God. Give him 11. <laughs> So I guess next up is the man of the hour, Ronnie Stanley. He's our number three. And I think you can't take away his all-pro ability before the injury when you make this list. But uh, we were talking before the show, and I think it's worth talking about now. Like We don't know what's going to happen with this guy at all. Um, It could be career-ending. It could be that he does come back strong and plays at a high level. And I feel like the Ravens are in a really bad spot because you're going to pay him like he's playing at a high level no matter what. And... There's nothing we can do about that. And the way our team's constructed roster, like salary wise, I feel like in a way you have to bet on him coming back for this offensive line to really be the best level it can be there. You just, there's only so much you can do to uh, mitigate against it. Yeah. I think what's crazy is if you go back and you look at last year, the most money spent on offensive line, I think people would be shocked to see the Ravens were third on that list uh, in the league. The most cap dollars, Spent in 2021 on O-line was the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, But a lot of that's, was a 18 mil cap hit to Ronnie Stanley who played one game, Uh, nine and a half mil, I think it was to uh, AV who you didn't get the return on that investment. So, I mean, that's, I think that was half of their, their cap allotment last year to their O-line was on those two guys. But yeah, Stanley, Stanley's 2019 was historic. Um, It was one of the best, pass blocking seasons for an offensive lineman. He allowed zero sacks and 12 pressures in all games, including the playoffs and four of those pressures came in the playoffs. Um, So, I mean, he just, it was, it was, it was almost at the point where like with him and Brown, like I never was worried when Lamar dropped back ever. Like it just, it it wasn't going to come from the edge. 
just wasn't, uh, they, they were locked down. Um, so I think when we paid him, I was fired up. I was like, you know, he's finally turned into the player, the six overall pick that he can be. And then that ankle injury changed the game. So we did, we talked about it off stream. I can talk about it now. Like uh, the, the concern I have is that a dislocation can cause nerve damage, nerve damage and an ankle, especially because it's on his plant foot can make it difficult for him to ever pass block again. I, I have no idea. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't necessarily want to speculate, but that is absolutely an outcome uh, that's possible. So, I mean, it's all about that. He did the cleanup surgery. It's all about how, he, how his body responds. So we just got to pray, hope, and the Ravens have to over over invest at offensive tackle, uh, probably in the draft, two picks, two guys that kind of have left tackle ability just to have options if what happens last year happens again. It's the only way. But Stanley's a phenomenal player. Like I said, that 2019 season was absolutely insane. It really showed the player he was turning into uh, 2020 when he was healthy, played really well too. So I don't think that was going away. He kind of put himself into the elite bucket of left tackles in the league and just injury just absolutely it's just such luck that in a span of like 12 months ronnie stanley dislocates his ankle and orlando brown jr has a hissy fit um it was just so for a guy that watches every rep five times on the offensive line it's just i went from watching the best tackle duo in the nfl to watching av and tyree phillips and it hurt my heart very much (laughs) oh it hurt everybody's heart (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> it was just bad. Yeah. yeah that- well, obviously, we hope for Ronnie Stanley's, you know, playing career, and I mean him, you know, for him, you gotta, you gotta feel that, he, that he's going through this. And first and foremost, we want to see Ronnie Stanley back on the field for for him to be able to continue his NFL career. But I think it'll be also a big blow to the Ravens organization if he's not able to yeah. go because, like you said, he was a six overall pick. The Ravens don't get top ten picks. No. Even in this season, when which was a major disappointment, they're, they're still they're 14th, right? That's where the first yeah. round pick is. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and they're screwed with that contract. Like, there's no way right. around this contract. Yeah. Like, they're just going to have to roll with it and, and try and work around it. But it reminds you of the cap hell they got into from the Ray Rice situation and the, the Dennis Pitta injury. And those cap hits screwed us uh, for. Not just one or two years. Yeah. I think it was like three or four years. Right. Um, so there's and no the, way the around Thomas it. Like it grievance yeah. isn't, isn't uh, resolved yet either. Yeah, it's just like, it just like I said, it's just like a string of bad luck, a nightmare that you just can't wake up from. So you're right. And I mean, that's it drives me crazy when I see people calling them soft. Like, you go dislocate your ankle and let's see what happens. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it drives me absolutely bananas. As someone that played the position, I've coached kids that played the position those injuries are so hard to work back from and Ronnie's doing everything he can. I mean, it's not like he's sitting at home doing nothing. He's rehabbing. He's in the building constantly. Um, He's putting in the work just like he always did uh, as a player. So we just got to hope. We just got to hope that he can get right. If it's one thing, you definitely can't call Ronnie soft. I mean, you can call him injured. I think even before like the major injury, he'd have like all these little soft tissue things or like things with his ankle or stuff. But I mean, he played through that stuff. Absolutely. I I think he missed missed a couple games. Yeah, maybe a handful. Yeah. But overall, like, it it felt like up until 2019, he was kind of like injured, like, miss a few games and then play with these sort of injuries. But I mean, he played through a lot of those. It wasn't until 2019 where he was like, okay, he's finally healthy and, you know, he's playing amazing. 
And then the timing obviously sucked. I think he he signed that deal on like a Wednesday and then he hurt his ankle on the Sunday. Yeah. It was just like, are you effing kidding me? Like, come on. The ankle's <laughs> he like, yeah. To get wrecked like that. And we just haven't really seen him since. Yeah. I, I just hope yeah. like, even as a person, you know, like he's okay. I imagine this is really traumatic for him mentally as well. So yeah, it's just really rough. But I guess to to round out on maybe a happier note is just two of the best players ever play for the Ravens, period, essentially. You got number two, Marshall Yonda. And we saw how this guy came in. He didn't have the best rookie year, right? He had to like really kind of uh, improve over time. But the third round pick definitely showed over the years uh, versatility, being able to move around the line, playing right tackle playing at right guard and um, even left guard once like he was all over the line whenever uh, the need arised. Yeah. Fun thing on that. I don't, do you guys remember the season he had to move to left guard? It was 2016. Yep. Do you guys remember why he moved? He had heard Wasn't it because room or something. Right. Yeah. So someone said on the timeline, I think it was uh, my guy, Tony at Blitzmore 99. He said, is it possible if, Ronnie Stanley's dealing with an ankle injury in his plant foot that he moves to right tackle. And at first I was like, there's no way we're moving Ronnie Stanley. But then I thought about it and I was like, they moved Yonda to left guard that one year because he hurt his labrum. So they put it in his outside shoulder because I think he hurt his left labrum. So they didn't want it on his inside hand. Um mm-hmm. Uh, like his inside part of his body. So right. they moved him to left guard. So I was like, that's not that crazy now that I actually think about it. Cause they just did it with another elite player uh, in Yonda. But I, I mean, you nailed it. Yonda's just like, I don't even really like, he was just so good for so long that it's like, I, I think it's almost, I think we almost underappreciate how much he did for Baltimore just because again, he was an interior player, not overly flashy, but just the model of consistency. Every rep was good. Rarely lost. Uh, rarely allowing pressure or sacks. Uh, just like an absolute freak. His ability to move around. He's also a leader. Um, just everything you'd want in, a, in an offensive lineman. Uh, Marshall Yonda had it. I'm just like, I'm honored to have been, as I was getting more into the film, that I got to watch him play um, in his prime because he was just a joy to watch every week. Yeah, I think for me, the, the toughness definitely stands out for me i was going to mention you know that, that 2016 season where he had to switch to the left guard who's like i mean you know he could have clearly gone on ir and just sat the season no. up he's like no he's gonna go to left guard and still have an amazing season there was like what a freak you know, no. <laughs> i hurt my back i don't know if you guys saw me lift it up i got my heating pad on my back right now i'm out for like three to five business days right now <laughs> 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 but yeah man this the toughness was off the charts and uh i you know i will say as far as you know yonder being in an overlooked position i mean i agree with you but i will say at least it seemed like nationally yonder was probably one of those first players that people really started to recognize like hey this guy's an elite guard year in and year out and people were finally starting to talk about it um and so you know even though you know being one of those guys who there's nothing like physically about him that kind of stood out. He was, you know, average size, you know, didn't average kind of quickness and everything, but he just, you know, he was tough as hell and he was just technically sound and he like put in the work 
all the time and it was awesome to get that recognition that guys on the broadcast talking about him like yeah is a great player and everything so still given all that like i agree kind of underappreciated but it was kind of cool to see just the rest of the football world kind of recognizing that yeah, it's a good point. It kind of goes to what we talked about earlier with like elite center play around the league. Um, he got into that group that got talked about nationally, right? And so that's obviously super important. And I think that most those guys that do that, they it's the guys that do it consistently every year. And that's what Yonda did, um, in my opinion. So I think that was obviously so sweet to see. Um, just, you know, one of our guys kind of being that top guard every year. The guys, it's like the Zach Martins now, the Quentin Nelsons, those kind of guys. Um, Yonda was kind of the leader of that group until they kind of took over when he retired. So I always thought that was really cool. But you're right. Like, I think he played with a nasty demeanor, but, you know, he wasn't constantly pancaking guys. He wasn't constantly, um, you know, getting out in space and making highlight blocks like Zach Martin does. He, he wasn't like flashy. He was just so consistent. Every rep was the same winning constantly. And then, you know, a guy that I think what he really brought to this team was that leadership on the offensive line. Just, you can't underrate that. It probably helped out Orlando Brown Jr. So much when he was developing a right tackle, just being beside Yonda for those early years in his career. Like you can't put a price on that, right? That leadership. So super important player. And to that point, when um, when he had to move over to to left guard in in 2016, who was he? Who was he? Uh, right there next to? Yeah, yeah. Ronnie Stanley. There you go. Good, great point. Good track record. And, and like that <laughs> that ability to switch, like without. I mean, you get pretty ingrained in your habits. Like I always notice if I get down when I'm at practice to show a kid a drill, I'm always going to align with my left foot back because I played left guard. And so you just, it's just a habit, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, it's it's just what I do. And that's why like, whenever someone's like, well, can he switch to the right side from the left side? I'm like, okay, go to the bathroom and wipe with your opposite hand. <laughs> right. just, like, it's, it's just going to feel different, right? Um, might get a little messy. Uh, so, you know, it's just like, so what that shows me with Yonda, it's that football IQ, right? Like his ability to just, he's such a natural football player, changes technique without really any issues. Um, he also, he, he kicked out to tackle it time to time. He knew the playbook inside and outside. That's football. And you nailed, one thing you really hit on that I don't think you can underrate was his work ethic. He was that kind of guy who was described as like, first guy in the gym, last guy out of the gym, constantly working. And I feel like he hit his prime late and his prime seemed to last all the way till 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, that speaks to the work ethic, right? Just to set that level of excellence and continually meet that elite level of play. That's something that Yonda did. So I I think the the hardworking thing is something you really got to highlight when you're talking about him. Yeah, Pro Bowler from 2011 through 2019, except for the year that he got injured in 2017. Notably, made the Pro Bowl at left guard when he had the switch with the injury. Awesome. And I guess the last thing I want to talk about with Yonda, and then we'll talk about for the last player as well, where do we think he ranked as a right guard all time? Like when you're talking about a guy of his stature with all those Pro Bowls and consistency and versatility, was he one of the best to ever play it? Not just as a Raven. I think he's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day. Um, I know people don't necessarily see it that way. I think because getting a guard, like look how long it took Alan Fanica to get in and Fanica probably ranks ahead of Yonda in that respect, but he's up there. I think what's going to give Yonda that he's got the Super Bowl, which you need. He's got the uh, consistent pro bowls that you just listed. 
Um, so, I mean, that was pretty much a pro bowl every year as a starter, pretty much, um, until he retired. So he's, he's got that on his resume. And, uh, I think he, he had some of the intangibles for where he got recognized nationally. And that's really what I think is going to push him over the top. He was recognized as a top guard for basically a decade. So I think I think it'll be one of those things where it's probably going to be like, he's not going to be a first ballot guy. It's probably going to be like in this last couple of years of eligibility and, and that sort of thing. So, but I do think he gets in the hall of fame eventually. I think he's looked at that highly. So I'd say he ranks quite high among his peers. Awesome. So let's wrap it up. No mystery here. We could have said it at the top of the show. Jonathan Ogden, number one, the best to ever play it in, in many people's eyes, at left tackle. Not always a left tackle, which was a, a fun, fun fact, uh, which we kind of already alluded to in this uh, episode. But just, I mean, incredible player, first pick ever for the Ravens, and never disappointed. I still can't believe they started their first draft with Ogden and Ray Lewis. Like, how ridiculous is that when you look back at it? But yeah, I, I mean what is there to say about Ogden? Like he was, I think he was a pro bowler every single year at left tackle four time, first team, all pro five times. Yep, like that's right. he was just, he was just that guy. Um, like he was an absolute monster. He is uh, a couple of guys were just talking about this on the timeline because uh, Trent Williams got rated in PFF. So PFF's only been doing their grades since like, 2006 maybe 2005 so i mean they don't have ogden's prime in their uh and like their database of top grades but uh trent williams came in this year just above ogden ogden had like a 95 rating in his 2006 season which was his second last year so i mean he's not in his prime at this point and williams just beat him with this so that only tells you what he would have been doing in like 01 02 03 04 um you know when he was in his prime uh but it's just i, I can't wait to finally get access to that all 22 and go back to like i can spend all day in the summers when there's nothing going on in raven's twitter and just watch Ogden play left tackle. Like I don't even know how to explain it. He was just elite in every sense of the word. He was just a, a thrill to watch. Like his movement skills and his size. He was prototypical. He was an absolute mountain of a guy. He was 6'9, 345, built the way you want to be built for a tackle. Um, exceptional movement skills, paved the way for some great rushers. Just elite. Like I, I think he's actually the best left tackle of all time. I know there's going to be, I think Jones kind of gets up there in the conversation, but I really do think it's, it's Jonathan Ogden. He had that versatility of power and speed that I don't think Jones had. I think something to definitely highlight with Ogden is, is like you said, just physically he was gifted with so much. And I actually did toy a little with the idea of like, is Yonda actually the number one? Should he be on number one on this? But I think if you look back on it again, we said Yana did have a slower start to his career. Ogden was dominant out of the gate. And sure, Yonda had more physical um, limitations to work through, but there's a lot of athletes at the professional level who have freakish athleticism that they're, you know, that they're giants among giants. And they just kind of sit on that and just, you know, rely on that and don't really work to their full, full potential. But Ogden was a guy who was a very keen student of the, of the game. You know, there's some, there's some clips on YouTube of him breaking down uh, his play of him mic'd up on the sideline. You can hear him uh, talking through the plays with coaches, trying to, you know, talking about in-game adjustments for the line 
calling out to the quarterback when there's when they're lined up and you can see that, that the defense has a de- uh, look that is just their offensive play they run is just never going to work in that situation. I, I I mean I think that's something else that just made him exceptional. Uh, again, physical attributes are a huge part of what why he was able to do what he did, but he took those gifts that he had and just maxed the potential with it and had an insane football IQ to go with it. That's exactly what you're looking for in a left tackle or in any, <laughs> honestly, any position in any sport. Um, and yeah, he was just incredible at it. Yeah, I think kind of worth talking about it, but I mean, if we kind of take this back to the top when we're talking about traits and we're talking about uh, who the Ravens are going to uh, draft at some of these positions going into this year is that a guy like Jonathan Ogden, I feel like where the Ravens, where the Ravens are drafting, I mean, it's going to be really difficult to find a guy who is that athletically gifted and also has that work ethic. Whereas a guy like Yonda, I think the, it feels like to me, at least over the last couple of years, I think the Ravens have been trying to optimize for trying to find another Yonda in those sort of mid rounds, like find the guys that are overlooked a little bit in their physical traits, uh, but can put in the work and be developed into sort of a a consistent starter and and hopefully something beyond that. And I think that kind of goes back to what you said earlier, Cole, is that, you know, some of these guys haven't kind of hit their peak until their last year and then they sort of leave for greater pastures, right? You know, I have to think unless something, you know, knock on wood, man, unless something like really bad would happen the next year and all of a sudden the Ravens are picking top five or something. Like unless that happens, it seems like at least the next couple of years, we got to kind of try to continue to bank on that of of hitting those mid-round guys. They may not be starters right away, but got to try to find somebody who can develop into you know, a consistent starter and maybe find a Yonda if you can. Yeah. I mean, their, their trend at the guard position has been, it's pretty clear cut. They've focused on guys that were multi-year starters, guys that were college leaders, uh, college All-Americans, high-performing college players, not necessarily the most athletically gifted guys, but they're what they were looking for was good football players. Um, and what I mean by that is kind of sounds like a stupid question or a stupid comment because it's like it's the NFL draft, aren't we always looking for good football players? Um, but what I'm what I mean by that is they're not looking for the crazy athletic upside. I would argue maybe Tyree Phillips kind of bucks that trend because I do think that's what they were looking for with him. He was a little bit of that kind of freakish upside if they could channel his athleticism at the guard position. But I mean Bredesen powers um they're they're coming from power five schools that all all american background i mean bredesen was like a four-year starter on a line in big 10 and i think what they were looking for was that ability to just kind of get them on the field early and and get games out of them and they can develop from there but uh you know, I, I think that's a really good comment because it really shows what their trend has been. And I think it's at least worth evaluating. Maybe they should be looking at guys with a little bit more athletic upside at this point uh, in the process. Yeah, I definitely can agree with that, particularly when we look at this log jam of left guards that we have now. It seems like there's a bunch of guys that could take the starting role and who's the right answer. I don't know. It makes you wonder, like, can any of those guys play uh, center? Can they pull Bozeman? But then you look at them and like, I don't think so, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's the unfortunate, right? Like they're not, they're not one of those kind of players that can um, move in. So it's just kind of a log jam. The one place we have depth on the offensive line is definitely that left guard position. I can't fathom a scenario where Cleveland or Phillips doesn't outright win that battle next year. Like how can one of them not just grab the bull by the horns and run with it? Like, it's just say they bring back Bozeman, like just for, 
you know, argument's sake, how can one of them just not grab that and run with it? And then you have a solid interior again with, you know, the winner, I think it's going to be Phillips. I've been pretty consistent on that. I'm pretty high on his game. I, you know, Phillips, Bozeman, Zeitler, like that's a pretty good interior. If Phillips can actually, you know, be the guy that he looks at times that he can be. It's been frustrating, man. It's been so frustrating, especially with a guy like Phillips, who, I mean, you go back to his rookie year, actually started to show promise at guard. Then the injury happened. They kicked him to tackle. He stunk. Uh, They move him back to guard. He starts again at guard. He looked pretty good. He gets hurt. And it's like, my goodness, can you just consistently play in this position? Um, So it's, it's been, it's been tough. It's been, it's like they're just constantly bailing water with Tyree Phillips. And I'd like to just leave him at left guard. Don't even think about him as an offensive tackle anymore. Forget about it. Just leave him at guard. Yeah. I think it stunted his development for sure. Having to keep yeah. playing two positions and not being able to focus uh, mainly out of desperation and emergency. But yeah, thanks so much Cole for coming on the show and uh, you know, providing us like all these great insights on the offensive line and kind of talking about the traits and how this offensive line could move forward uh, with all these question marks surrounding it. Anytime guys. Yeah. No, if you guys want to do this again, closer to the draft, go through some draft prospects. Uh, let me know. Happy to do this. Uh, love cutting this up. And I love how we can kind of sit back, talk about the team and have some laughs. It was, it was a blast joining us. Thanks man. So where can people find the rest of your work? Uh, so at Cole Jackson FB on Twitter and then over at the two guys watching football YouTube channel. I'm pretty much really just doing film rooms at this point. So if you guys want to get kind of an in-depth look at a little access to the all 22 film, I'm usually dropping about one or two episodes a week of different college players. If there's someone you guys want to see hop in, let me, uh, let me know who it is and I'll try and cut up the film on them. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for all that you do for the Ravens community. And that wraps up this episode of Ravens recap. You can find us Ravens underscore recap on Twitter or email us feedback at Ravens We'll be back in a few weeks with more uh, NFL content. I think we'll finally start talking about some free agents as we get a little bit closer to that deadline as the new league year starting. We'll talk to you soon.